I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Save big money on protecting your garden. Now at Menards. Messina's Animal Stopper is a liquid repellent that prevents pesky animals from damaging your garden. Available in a convenient, ready-to-use bottle. It lasts for up to 30 days, regardless of weather and watering. Save big money on Messina's Animal Stopper at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals happening now. Okay, senior producer Maureen um, McMurray. Executive. <laughs> okay, executive producer Maureen McMurray and senior producer. Yeah, you Taylor got mine Kirby. right. I have a story for you. Let's hear it. It's about utility rate design. Sam. <laughs> Another thrilling topic from Sam. Can I can I turn this off now or do I have to wait 15 minutes and then? <laughs> okay, oh, wait, wait, wait. Let me try again. It's about the accidental origin of net metering, the obscure arrangement between renewable energy generators and the utilities that has enabled explosive growth in rooftop solar energy. That sounds uh, a little more interesting. Ex- I like explosive. That's That was the word that kept, caught me on that one, but the rest of it could probably go. Okay, all right. Um, you look so excited, by the way. I'm so excited. So here's here's actually what it's about, and here's why I'm so excited. How about if it's the story of a guy named Stephen Strong and how in his quest to save the world, he gave us, kind of accidentally, a system that has come to be the bedrock of the American rooftop solar industry and the subject of one of today's biggest energy battles. I like battles. All right. So you've got me with explosive and battles. Let's do this. And that guy's name is pretty great. Was it Stephen Strong? From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. And that's our story today. It's the story of Stephen Strong and the super fascinating origin of net metering. Sun energy, the license plate, appropriately. 
Oh, and then we've got plug-in. So like me, Stephen is an energy nerd. He's a guy who, when Toyota came out with the Prius, he got his engineers to hack the thing. Oh my gosh. What? All right, so can you describe what we're looking at here? This is a lithium-ion battery pack that's shoehorned into the spare tire. And it's very cleanly and well done, but it, but it is clearly DIY. So this allows the car to run all electric for 30 to 40 miles. But remember, we did this uh, eight or nine years ago. So he and his engineers made a plug-in Prius, and they did it years before the car company. And also Toyota went bananas when we told them we were doing this. So I recently, I met him down in Massachusetts. He took me for a drive in this thing. And he got his start as a young engineer working on the Trans-Alaska oil pipeline in the years of the Carter administration. But then there was the whole Arab oil embargo. There was this scandal where contractors were falsifying some of the required safety measures for the pipeline. And so he resigned. I resigned a to-die-for, well-paying job, came back to Boston with a lot of enthusiasm and not knowing any better, founded Solar Design Associates. But this was a time when solar energy was literally just a thing that was on satellites in outer space and almost didn't exist on planet Earth. And when was this again? Is this the 70s? Yeah, mid-70s. It was a heck of a hard way to make an easy living in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. So Stephen Strong is this hard-charging, ready-to-drop-everything-and-get-his-hands-dirty kind of guy. And he kicked off what eventually became kind of a revolution in the way a lot of people are getting their energy. But he didn't do it with a couple of souped-up Priuses. He did it by putting solar panels on an apartment building for people with modest incomes. There it is. That's the building there. Oh, wow. It's, it's huge. Yeah, it is, it's huge with a Y. Bernie. Bernie's Y. It's huge. So this building looks kind of like a big college dorm. It's brick and pretty unremarkable. I think we're not supposed to drive this way. Well, that's, too, that's the story of my life. <laughs> but when it was built, on its roof, there was this massive array of solar panels, one of the first of its kind. This was uh, one of the largest solar thermal systems in New England. And it met something like 80% of the annual hot water requirements. But this was, this was like the early days of solar, so this was solar thermal. It's just like heating hot water. It didn't make electricity. Wait, so solar thermal, all, it uses solar panels, but all it does is heat up hot water. And that was, that was cool? Solar thermal is like the simplest technology on the planet. <laughs> it's so simple. It's got this big box, and on the inside you've got some tubes that are colored black, and you put water in it or some sort of coolant or refrigerant in there, and the sun shines on the black tubes and heats it up, and then you can circulate that back into a tank, and, and that's all it was. That's, I feel like I could come up with that. I feel like that's, that's like on the level technology-wise of like using a magnifying glass to, to like set a piece of paper on fire. Well, but yeah, but back in the 70s, that already made financial sense. Wait, uh, the solar panels that Carter put on the White House, were those the solar thermal ones? Yeah. They're stupid. <laughs> that's it? He was just heating water at the White House? Yeah, <laughs> which is actually a fact that I think a lot of people today don't really know anymore. In fact, most people thought that they were making electricity. Nah. Anyway, now you guys know. <laughs> and then Reagan took them down. <laughs> yes, he did. Because he thought they were stupid. Well, they kind of were. were. <laughs> 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 well, they're certainly not as sexy or as versatile as solar electric panels. And so, so, so you're right, historically, like they haven't gotten very much attention. But as much as you guys think might think that they're stupid, they already were cost effective then, and they still are today. I mean, it, it is a really simple technology. 
So anyway, back in the 70s, solar photovoltaic, which is what you're thinking about when I say solar panels, was something like 65 times more expensive than it is today. It was expensive and electricity was cheap. But Stephen Strong, who always wanted to be pushing the envelope and was already trying to save the world back in the 70s, convinced the developer to let him install a couple of solar photovoltaic panels up there too because he wanted to experiment with them. Now, as soon as the technology was available, we were employing it. But there was this question, how should I do the wiring? Wait, what do you mean? So whenever the sun is shining, obviously the electricity will go towards running all the stuff in the building, you know, the water pumps, the hot water heaters, whatever. But what happens when the sun is not shining? Or what happens if the sun is shining and there's nothing going on in the building? Right? So today, we take the answer to these questions for granted. When you're not using it, the extra energy can just feed into the grid. But when Stephen Strong was wiring up this building, that was not a given. And so what he decided to do was just configure it so that when there's no sun, the building would work just like any other building. It would buy electricity, and the little dials on the electric meter would roll in one direction. But if the sun was shining and the building wasn't using any energy, that extra electricity would flow out onto the grid and the little dials on the electric meter would just roll in the other direction, backwards. Does it have to go somewhere? Like, would it be dangerous if you didn't, like, would it explode in the solar panels? No, it's not dangerous. As long as you don't complete a circuit, the the electrons have nowhere to go. The sun hits them, but they just don't move, basically. Yeah. You could do that. You could wire it up so that if there's nothing going on in the building, nothing happens. Okay. But Stephen Strong, trying to save the world, thinks like that's wasteful. So he wires it up so it'll go back into the grid. And he tried it, and it worked. It was just, it was intuitive. It was almost like that's just the way it should be. It's like we're producing electrons that are just as valuable as the ones provided by the coal plant or the heavy residual fuel oil-driven plant. Uh, why shouldn't they receive the same value? And and so it, it just made sense. I mean, did did you talk to the utility at all? Did you show them your design and say, this is what we're going to do? No. Uh, the the developers, uh, they said, don't, you don't worry about that. You just get the technical side of this done and, and get it get it working. And we'll, we'll take care of that. We're going to be interfacing with the utility. Uh, it turned out that, that they didn't say anything about the system to the utility purposefully. So when the system was complete and, and ready essentially to start up, one of the brothers came up into the mechanical penthouse on the top of the building and said, well, how are we doing with the solar, Stephen? I said, well, it's Peter, it's, it's ready to go. Uh, we just need to get permission from the utility to interconnect with the grid. And he, he threw the switch and he said, uh, that's okay, we'll take care of that. Uh, and, and told me at the time, uh, there's one thing in your career that you should learn early, and that is it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is to ask permission. Is that true? So why wouldn't he tell them? Well, it's uncharted waters. He didn't know what the utility would say, and he didn't want to be told no. But anyway, their plan, instead of asking for permission, 
was they had this big ribbon-cutting ceremony. And I mean, this was a big, federally subsidized, low-income housing project. It had this exciting new solar panel thing on the roof. So they invited the head of the Renewable Energy Laboratory, all the senators and congresspeople from Massachusetts. They invited President Carter, and he was going to come. (laughs) Except there was a strike at a nearby shipyard, and so the Secret Service said, maybe you should stay away. Um, so, like, they had this huge event, and this parade of important people goes up to the microphone and talk about how great and important this building is. And the last person to talk is the executive from the utility. He basically praised how innovative the solar systems were and, and how forward-thinking the developers were, and that was it. And afterwards, he said, see, I told you, we, we didn't, we, I would take care of that. It wouldn't be an issue. And he was right, of course. Ladies and gentlemen, is how we got a little policy called net metering. It started at a subsidized housing complex, and the utilities were on board. So net metering literally means the meter. It's like it's like gross and net. Like it's the net of when the meter goes forward and goes backward. It's what's in between. Yeah, net as in net versus gross. I mean, the only reason that it was designed that way is because that is what the meter could do. You know that little spinning disc electric meter? All it can do is spin forward and backwards. So that's what they used. But it was well and truly the first one that was connected to the utility grid outside the fence of a government laboratory. Okay, so he, okay, so he puts in the solar panels on the roof of this building. What, what happens? Uh, well... They didn't last very long. <laughs> so I asked a couple of the people who lived in the building if they knew about it. It was first constructed. How I about had, I that? I have no idea. How about that one? I did not know. Yeah, first. So do, do you both live here? Do either yes, of you live here? Yes, yeah, yeah. And you had no idea? No. No. Nothing at all. Because people have been here 30 years. They probably don't know it either. It seems rather foolish that they yeah. were put on. And now they take yeah, them off. Yeah, so they took me inside. I'm a, I'm a reporter. I'm working on a story about your building. They introduced me to the, the manager of the building. My name's George. George, last name? Pickwick. A uh, very friendly gentleman named George Pickwick. Uh, and he had actually been working there for 30 years. He had this big photo in his office of the of when the building first opened. Just absolutely the roof is totally covered with solar panels. Oh, there they are. Look at that. Yeah. Okay, so how long have you been here? I've been here over 30 years. Okay. And I, I, I took them off. Oh, you did? Yeah. What was the problem? The problem was, uh, see, these panels, they're pretty good size. There was 300 of them. So the solar hot water actually lasted around 20, 25 years. Well, that's not bad. Yeah, but that's just the hot water. Those first few quasi-experimental solar electric panels, the ones that were the first example of net metering, guess what happened to them? These were solar voltaic cells right here. These got blown off in the first year. Oh, so they didn't even make a year. Oh, they didn't like, they didn't glue them on or whatever. <laughs> it's Massachusetts. <laughs> it gets windy. So, so all that's left now is that photo in his office, which is not a terribly auspicious start. But what it did do was kick off some intense interest in this idea that solar could serve the needs of a home, but also produce electricity for the grid, like a tiny part-time power plant. So very shortly afterwards, he gets a call from MIT, and they say that they want to build a house that is, um, quote-unquote, energy independent. So a house that generates as much energy as it uses. And they bring him to this place in Carlisle, Massachusetts. They build what's the first so-called net zero home, 
which is not to say that it's off-grid. It's connected to the grid. It's just that it sells as much as it buys. It's very handsome. It's uh, rather rather uh, cloistered by conifers. And this gets headlines all over the globe. It gets covered in magazines because people are like, cool, solar is the technology of the future. And because of all this attention, a local utility reaches out to Stephen Strong, and they say they want to build a net zero house too, which they call the Impact 2000 house. Wait, the, the utility company did? Yeah, so what was going on here at the time was that this was like the heyday of anti-nuclear uh, protests. And so they were just looking for anything that was about electricity and was going to get them good headlines. So they build this thing that's super insulated and covered with solar panels and perfectly oriented to maximize the amount of sun that it gets. And the whole PR thing worked out perfectly because, as it turns out... Bob Vila is the author of a book on home repair called Bob Vila's This Old House. Do you really think we're going to end up with a house that will practically be free to heat and to, to run or very low cost? Bob, in addition to your wish list, we as solar designers have added our own list of imperatives. They did the entire fifth season of This Old House about the Impact 2000 house. Were they building a new house? Yeah, they called it the all-new This Old House. (laughs) (laughs) That's so lame. Uh, And all of these circumstances just seemed to converge in, in sort of cosmic serendipity. And a project that I could not have imagined... Uh, happened at our doorstep. Okay, so the, what's it called? Solarplex 2000? <laughs> Impact, Impact 2000, 2000 house. house. Is it still there? The house is still there, but the owner, a guy named Andrew Stitch. Hi, I'm Andrew Stitch. Was actually happy to talk about the house, and it turns out... Unfortunately, when we bought it, the solar had been removed. The realtor who resold the house asked to have the solar panels removed no. because, you know, what the heck are those crazy things? Those don't belong in a house. Get those out of here. No. And then later, Andrew also said they got rid of the fireplaces. I agree with that. Fireplaces are, are an energy waste. Yes. The reason the fireplace was there is because the This Old House series thought it would be interesting to show how to put a fireplace in. Yeah. We were against it from day one, so I applaud your decision. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, it's the first applause I've received for that movement in 15 years. Uh, Nerds. So after the Impact 2000 house, um, the the competing utility then came to Stephen Strong. They were like, we want you to do an entire solar neighborhood. And then before long, Massachusetts officially put this rule about net metering on the books. So the policy of letting your meter run one way when you're making too much solar energy and the other when you're not making enough starts to spread. Other states started to allow net metering. They passed laws that formally established the practice. Now, full net metering, where you can use solar credits banked in the summer to offset usage later in the winter, that's allowed in 41 states, plus Washington, D.C. And for years, not only was it totally non-controversial, but it was sort of like, duh, like how else do you expect us to wire up one of these solar homes? Which is kind of bonkers, because I mean... You have this big policy with the potential to shape the future of something as important as the electric grid, and you sort of assume that somebody has thought about it. Yeah. Like, there must have been some committee somewhere that had figured this out. Like, yes, this is how we will compensate the owners of solar panel. But that's not what it was. It was just sort of this organic, historical accident that just happened kind of under the radar. Yeah. 
Yeah, but the utility companies at this point, they're like dancing with the devil and they don't even realize it. Yeah, and nobody nobody had any reason to say, oh, this might not be a good idea because solar was just like this weird thing that probably was never going to be cost effective. Until, suddenly, solar started to get cheap. And that's where net metering gets dicey and where the battles begin, which is what we'll talk about after a quick break. Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Masterforce Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Masterforce tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Okay, so for a really long time, net metering was so rare that it was a total non-threat to the electric companies. But recently, the cost of a solar panel has been falling. In 1980, a solar cell was $30 a watt. Today, it's more like 30 cents a watt. Oh, wow. I don't, I don't know what a watt It's a watt is. of money. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> a watt of money. <laughs> You don't have to know what a watt is. You don't have to know. Yeah, but no, no, but no, seriously. They're like 10 times as cheap now as they used to be. That's all that matters. For decades, solar power was so expensive and unwieldy, few could afford it. And that is changing in a mind-bendingly rapid pace. Solar City thinks it can convince 5 million American households to replace their roofs with solar energy shingles. Solar-related stocks rallied on Wednesday on the news that Congress plans to extend a solar investment tax credit by five years. Solar City is surging, in fact, along with the entire solar sector. So and starting like, in the mid-2000s, a bunch of really ambitious, well-financed companies started saying, hey, we could make some money doing this. And so from 2009 to 2010, the amount of solar in the U.S. doubled. It doubled again from 2010 to 2011. Oh, wow. It doubled again from 2011 to 2013. Whoa. And from 2013 to today, it's on track to triple again. Okay, so so what is what are these companies doing that's different? Like, how are they making money? What's their model? What they're doing is they're offering people solar panels for no money down. So if you had someone come to your door and knock on your door and say, hey... Want to be part of, like, the next renewable energy era? 
you can have solar panels on your roof right now. It's not going to cost you any money, and we're going to give you a discount on your power bill. I'd say, yeah. And that's made possible by net metering. And I think it's fair to say that the electric companies basically did not see this coming. And so they're starting to push back. So where, where are the fights happening now, then? Where, where are the really high-profile fights over net metering? Well, so the, obviously Arizona is the number one. So that's Christy Schallenberger, who works for this industry news site called Utility Dive that tracks all of this stuff. She points out that we've seen net metering battles in California, Nevada. And of course you have Nevada, which has basically become the byword for what you don't want to see. Nevada's fight got really crazy. Huge, huge blowback from all walks of life. Basically, you have celebrities, you have presidential candidates. I do not often get involved in state or local issues other than my own state, but I find it rather incredible that the Public Utilities Commission here in Nevada has made a decision which makes it harder for people to install solar panels. Wait, who is that? That was Bernie Sanders. (laughs) (laughs) You're joking. But anyway, you've got this crazy, obscure policy that's getting tons of attention. Hillary Clinton talked about it when she went to Nevada and talked to local newspapers there. There are fights in Iowa, Texas, Maine, Vermont, New York, Utah, Hawaii, and of course, right here in New Hampshire. It's a battle that's happening all over the country, state by state, the local electric companies pushing back and all the solar installers fighting against the utilities. And each state has like its own local flavor to this argument. OK, but, but I still don't understand a little bit about this fight. Like, why would me having solar panels on my roof, why would it make the utility company like so angry? Is it just money? Yeah. So it, it all goes back to how we pay for electricity. So, OK, here I talked to Michael Harrington, who... Here in New Hampshire, he used to be one of the guys who regulates electric companies. It's a taking from the not so uh, people that have not so much and giving it to people have more. Uh, say I was a retired school teacher in Manchester living in an apartment. There's no way I'm going to put solar panels on that apartment roof and get any benefit from that metering, but I'm going to have to pay for it because some guy in Bedford, I just used Bedford as an example, got nothing to do with problem with Bedford. Bedford, if you're not from New Hampshire, is a wealthy suburb of Manchester, which is our biggest city. But he might have a 4,000 square foot house, and he says, boy, if I do this net metering thing in five or six years, I'll be getting basically free electricity. But if I'm living in a mobile home or an apartment building or a small house, or even if I'm just someone who says, I'm worried about paying my mortgage for the next five or six months, not that I'm going to be able to make money six or seven or eight years from now after I break even. So it's a, it's a, it's a reverse distribution of wealth from the way we normally do things in the United States. And I, I don't think that's right. Huh. I get it. So it's like someone ultimately has to pay. And if all of these people who are people of means who are homeowners have solar panels, then the cost of the other utility will go up. And that means that people who are renting or anything like that, they get screwed because I want solar panels on my house. And that's me. See, at the beginning, I was saying you guys weren't you guys were saying you weren't going to be excited to talk about utility rate making. But all of a sudden you're excited. (laughs) This is how rate structures work. Right. A utility is a big company that invests a ton of money in poles and wires, in energy to send across those poles and wires. And then they take all of their customers and they divide the cost of that up between all of them and they spread it around. And it's basically been like that since the first electric meter was invented. Because fun trivia here, 
Uh, when Thomas Edison built the first electric power stations, there were no meters. He actually billed people a monthly fee based on how many light bulbs they had. Oh, really? Not to, and not based on how often they were using those bulbs? Because they had no way of measuring it. Oh, it was, oh. when did they start measuring it? Uh, so the first electric meters were being designed back in the late 1800s. And so the point is that this entire business model is based on a piece of equipment that's more than 100 years old. And under that business model, if, say, 50% of the people in the U.S. went solar and started net metering, a big chunk of the money that they're saving is money that's not going towards paying for the poles and wires. And and also, I would imagine that it would affect places like hospitals and things like that. So it's not just people who aren't of means that are um, absorbing the cost, but it would be courts, public buildings, schools. So this is the argument against net metering, which is you... Or let's say me, because I actually do have solar panels on my roof. So you're screwing me because I don't. I'm screwing you, yeah. Me putting solar panels on my roof costs you money. What the hell, Sam? What the hell, Sam? (laughs) Except the problem is we're not 100% sure that's true. i got to look something up because... um... So this is another former regulator, Cliff Below. Where is that? He's the one here in New Hampshire who wrote the first initial net metering law here in New Hampshire. Oh, here. Well, I see the footnote to it. And he says that even then, there was this intuition, like this feeling, that maybe there were actually benefits to solar. Net metering was originally thought of as a rough justice, that there were benefits particularly to solar because increasingly for New England, um, peak demands were being driven by air conditioning loads, which is driven by sunlight shining on buildings and heating things up. So the feeling was solar might be higher than average in in value, and and I think the evidence has proven that out over the years, that solar tends to produce at higher than average price hours. So Cliff Below is literally saying the exact opposite thing from Michael Harrington. He's saying that me putting solar panels on my roof actually saves you guys money. Okay, well, this is a pickle. I I don't know if I believe him. (laughs) I don't think think it's going to save enough money. All right, so, so let's first maybe dig into why it might be. Even though we pay the same amount for every unit of energy on our electric bills, all electrons are not created equal. In reality, every five minutes, there's a new auction for energy. So every five minutes, we've got a new price for energy. When demand is low, prices are low, and they can actually go negative, like power plants will pay us so that they don't have to shut down. Usually that's at night. And when demand is high, prices can be insane, like 100 times higher than normal. And again, the utilities take all of those costs, they average them all out, and they divide them by their customers. So the thing is, solar panels are producing at times of day that's really high value. Sunny, hot, those are usually the times where where electricity is expensive, and that's when you're producing solar power. And and so by feeding back into the grid, we're cutting usage so much that that it lowers the price during those peak times. Exactly. And so Cliff Below is arguing... These people are actually, you know, even though they're getting paid more than a regular power plant, they're actually getting paid less than the energy's worth. And that means that there's savings for every solar panel you put on the grid. I I would admit, but that's only true up until a certain point, right? I mean, if you suddenly tip it and it goes from 20 percent of the population on solar panel to 50 to 70, then I'm sorry, Cliff, your math doesn't work out. That is exactly right. That is, you should go work for MIT. (laughs) You know, these problems are often put out there as as very difficult problems to solve. They're actually not 
in my view, that difficult to address, but we need to just put all of the numbers on the table. So this is Jessica Transick. She's a professor of energy studies at MIT. Jessica's point is that every solar array, you can answer this question. You can look at the data. When is it producing? What are the power prices at that moment? What kind of circuit is it on in the grid? Like, what's the load on that circuit? Is it helping on that circuit or is it hurting on that circuit? You can take all that data and you can just answer the question. Look at each different location and understand how the situation, what the situation looks like today, and then how that's likely to change over time. But I think that's all very doable. And so you get this question, which is, okay, if that's doable, how do we do it? And there are lots of proposals, uh, which we can talk about, or we could not. (laughs) Give us one. Give us your favorite. (laughs) All right. Well, the most interesting to me is from a guy called Don Kreese. Do you think that the way that we pay for electricity is just dumb? That's a leading question. <laughs> yes, it is, uh, it is clearly inappropriate uh, in today's uh, technological age to continue to charge people the same price for electricity 24-7 when the cost of providing people with electricity varies uh, sometimes by orders of magnitude depending on the time of day and the time of year and the grid conditions that apply. So is it not then, by extension, also kind of dumb to not vary the price that we're paying customers who are generating solar power from their roofs? Uh, I agree with that as well. Don is the state's consumer advocate. His job is to watch out for people who pay electric bills. So basically, he's supposed to be keeping costs down and looking out for the little guy. It, it simply isn't fair to take a you know retired school teacher living on a fixed income in uh, Manchester and force that customer to pay subsidies to a uh, wealthy hedge fund manager living in Bedford who has a McMansion that's covered in solar panels. Is there is there some actual retired school teacher in Manchester and some actual hedge fund manager in Bedford? Because Michael Harrington gave me the exact same analogy. <laughs> uh, not not that I'm aware of. There totally uh, is. <laughs> where are those people? Uh, but anyway, I mean, Don Kreese also thinks that this cost shifting thing is a problem. So then the question becomes, what do we do about it? Most of the fixes that people are proposing are kind of blunt instruments, pretty like disappointingly blunt to me. If you're a net metered customer in New Hampshire, you're getting paid about 17 cents per kilowatt hour, which is just the measure of energy we use to bill consumers. So 17 cents is the starting point. Solar advocates want that number just to stay the same, and the utilities tend to want to cut it until it's about the same as what power plants are paid like four to six cents, maybe a third as much. And that's kind of the standard response, just tweak the number. But alternatively, you can start to get a little more radical. You can start to tweak the system so that the way that we pay for electricity actually starts to reflect what energy really costs. And so this is what Don Kreese wants to do. It's called a time-of-use rate. What's Time of use rate? Crazy. <laughs> I want to. I want to know what it is. Although, I mean, it's, it it sounds like every other piece of jargon in the energy industry, which is obnoxious. But I feel like I understand this a little better now. So just just hit me with it. What is it? Time of use pricing, as in you get paid more if your solar is going during those high price times, like later in the afternoon. But you also pay more if you're using more energy in the afternoon. And so to make this really simple, every day there'd be a different price. 
a higher price between 2 p.m. and 8 p.m., which is when electricity is pricier. And this is cracking open the door to a radically different way to pay for energy. Instead of abiding by this crazy illusion that every electron is worth the same amount, it's acknowledging that when demand is high, electricity gets expensive, and maybe we should let people know that. And Jessica Transick from MIT, she likes this idea, but she wants to take it even a step farther. Remember, there is constantly a new price for electricity every five minutes, and she thinks we should have a display in our houses that says, here's the price of energy right now. I I think that we can provide that more frequently updated information to consumers and and offer offer that that price. Um, I think that that should be possible. Like something that literally follows... Like the five minute, every five minutes, the market clears, you get a new price? Well, maybe hourly, you know, I think five minute, <laughs> five minutes might be a bit too much, but, but hourly. Um, well, so if, if you ever find a utility that wants to do that, I'm, I'm ready to sign up. I'll be in the pilot. <laughs> I think that'd be fun. Okay, great. I'll let you know. I'll let you know. See, I actually find that really interesting because I had no idea that it varied at all. And it varies wildly. And, you know, I would think twice about turning the light switch on if there was a flashing red high price alert or something. Yeah, right. Now, there are some really important caveats about this approach. Like, one, rolling out new meters everywhere would be expensive. It would be a very big and difficult change in the way that utilities operate. But also, two, the markets can be brutal. Like, prices that go up to a hundred times the average. That is nuts. And that's why even Jessica Transick thinks prices should have a cap and why Don Kreese wants this sort of declawed version of real-time prices. Just a slightly more expensive period from 2 to 8 p.m. versus really following the market. You know, from a theoretical standpoint, real-time pricing has has much to recommend it. Uh, It's scary. So. Because, you'd be, because you're thrown to the wilderness, you're naked and afraid. Yeah, it has its perils, right? I mean, you know, you're basically talking about taking regular garden variety electric consumers who aren't sitting around all day thinking about their electric consumption and uh, sending them out uh, naked into the harsh weather, right? I mean, elect- electricity at wholesale can get really expensive uh, at certain times. And the price of it can actually go negative at other times. And uh, that, that could be a scary ride. I don't think he's giving people enough credit. If it comes down to someone's wallet, they're going to want to know. And I mean, if it's just a question of like, when am I going to run my dryer or my dishwasher? Whatever, I'll wait. So what does Stephen Strong think about all this? Well, you know, he says that for his whole career, he's been listening to these utility engineers who have been talking about how terrible the grid is going to be disrupted. With frequency instability and wave farm harmonics and power factor shift and how you just can't understand. We can't hold her any longer, Scotty. She's going to blow. And he points to Europe where there have been these days, like really sunny and windy days at the same time, where countries like Germany and Denmark have gotten huge quantities of their electricity from renewable energy. And guess what happened? Nothing. So he's sort of like, fool me once, shame on you. And he doesn't believe that solar is costing anybody anything and doesn't believe any of the utilities arguments. But I will say, you know what I like about this whole idea that solar people should be paying real-time rates? 
I mean, apart from just being a big nerd and liking that. <laughs> Imagine you just smoking a pipe by the fire. <laughs> just watching the electric meter change. Ooh. So the way things are right now, we have this policy that is designed by accident, and we're just hoping that it's not screwing anybody. And if the argument of the pro-solar people is that me using net meter doesn't cost you any money because the energy from my solar panels is worth more than average, if that theory is right, going to hourly rates means that solar is actually going to do better under that situation. And if their theory is wrong, then the retired school teacher in the apartment building doesn't get stiffed. You know how net metering started? There was that architect guy Steven in... Strong. Yeah. Did you actually talk to him? I spent a day with him. Really? So you know that like he just did it without asking anybody's permission. Yes. Say, like, he didn't know. So like, good. I want to see if my meter is going to run backwards if I just wire my building up and, you know, and attach it to the Boston Edison grid. I want to see what happens. And he was right. But but the fact is that it, it you know it, it it wasn't like the commission on uniform state laws got together and said let's design a net metering statute that will promote the development of distributed generation you know in this really logical rigorous way no it just happened by accident and now it's everywhere and so it is high time for everybody to take a look and see what a rational well designed bit of public policy would be. Or, or maybe we'll just go back to billing by the light bulb. <laughs> Let's do it. I, I'm going to reduce my number of light bulbs. That's what I, that's, I, can, I yeah. can handle that. It'll be very cheap. <laughs> Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, and Logan Shannon with help from Maureen McMurray, Taylor Quimby, Jimmy Gutierrez, and Molly Donahue. Thanks this week to Bob Johnstone, whose book Switching to Solar led me to Stephen Strong, and to Haskell Worland, who rushed back from a funeral to talk solar policy with me. You can see pictures of that infamous first grid-tied solar apartment building, as well as some of the other buildings I saw on my tour of the early days of net metering at outsideinradio.org. And if you haven't followed us on social media yet, you should. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Outside In Radio. Music this week was from Jazar, Jason Leonard, Blue Dot Sessions, and Poddington Bear. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. So let's first maybe dig into why it might be. More electric markets trivia. <laughs> Woo! Yay! Come on, Maureen. <laughs> Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, 
Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.